normally coming out of intermission, nobody will listen to what you have to say or to come back because you're having fun and talking. Um, so, all right. I will say this. The men's retreat. If you have questions on it, come talk to me and Kyle or other guys that have gone. I understand. I'm going to look at some of you guys in the eyes and, and know this, that some of you are like, oh, man, I've been on the, I've done these things. I'm not into shotguns, you know, like whatever. <laughs> Here at Mosaic, it's kind of the opposite. You should be more worried about they're going to make me cry, aren't they? Like they're going to like judge me if I don't cry by the end of it and like, they're going to make me play those weird board games that nobody wanted to play in high school. And the answer to that is yes. Okay. It's going to be, there's a lot of weird board games. Uh, so it's a, I joked with somebody, I said, it's a little bit of a nerd fest, that less of a bro fest. Although there are some sports that get played like ultimate Frisbee. So, I mean, it is a real, uh, you know, real man, manly man time of weekend. So uh, I just want to encourage you to come any amount that you can. I think it's a good time. Uh, and so I just wanted to say that from the front because I've gotten that question a few times of like, like how like men's conference is this? And I'm like, well, you know, <laughs> everybody's wearing pink socks. So it's good. So come. All right, we're in week four of our We Are Mosaic series. It's some sort of a vision series that we've been doing the last, uh, or this fall, last four weeks as we are in week four, because that's how time works. Uh, and I wanted to say this too, is this series gets closer to wrapping up. Next week, Kyle will do one more sermon. And then in two weeks, we're going to have a Q&R moment. Uh, we, we do these from time to time for different series that we do here at Mosaic. And we think it's a great opportunity for you guys to actually kind of be involved in the, and to create dialogue because we don't want the sermon moment to simply be just like this time where we disseminate information and you leave enlightened somehow because we don't think that that's how this works. And so we want you guys to have an involvement, but especially in a series like this where we're talking about who we are as a people, what our vision is, what our hope is, some of the things that guide us and shape us and form us. And so I just want to say, if you uh, have questions as this series is going, or have had questions, or, or thinking on things, feel free to go ahead and text those to me and Kyle, or email us, uh, hit somebody up on the, uh, on the socials, we can make one of those fancy Instagram things where you can ask questions, like in the stories, you know, I see how smart people do that sometimes. And so we'll do stuff like that, where you can submit these questions ahead of time, and no question is off hand for this. Uh, or off topic because it really is it's who we are so maybe your question is like why didn't you guys talk about this or like you didn't mention this I'd like to know more about this as we talk about who we are as a people and as a community so I want you to or I want you to encourage you guys to uh, think through those questions of something you may want to talk about or, or dialogue or discuss because we really uh, enjoy that moment and I'll just say this we call it a question and response because we don't think that necessarily Kyle and I have all the answers. And we want it to, to, we want it to feel that way. I mean, sometimes you may ask something and we may go, ah, well, there's just not a great answer to that. But we can give our thoughts because I will always do that. Last week, Kyle talked about what it means to this under Jesus. That's maybe slightly different language for some of us. And we're borrowing directly from Dallas Willard with that word, at least to the best of our knowledge. He's the one that sort of has started using that in modern vernacular. And we use that because I think discipleship in the same way that we talk about mission and witness, like there's so much we can associate to these things and we have certain sort of connotations and context that we place it in. And apprentice really, for us at least, it pulls that word out 
and it allows us to think about what we're doing as we follow Jesus. So Kyle was talking about that. That's the task. As a community, we want to gather together to be a people that would apprentice ourselves, that would become like. And Kyle did the, the, the thing that I thought was so wonderful, where he named people and how many thousands of hours people you know have spent becoming the thing that they are supposed to become. And that is the same for us here, that as we follow Jesus, and that gives us grace for one another, right? Like understanding that this is thousands of hours, a lifelong commitment to becoming this thing. And we think that that's important because something that we're so identified by here, and if you had talked to very many people at Mosaic, I think most of them would say, if you ask, why do you love Mosaic? Like, why do you keep coming? And I would love for it to be the preaching, but it's probably not. Like, it's a good chance it could be the music, but, you know, I mean, that maybe that's not your thing. Most people say it's the community. It's the relationship. It's the people. It's being accepted. It's the fact that we've had this story told to us. Like, I walked through the door, and for the first time, somebody, like, actually asked me something about me. You know, it wasn't just like, oh, hey, how you doing? Like, they wanted to know me, and I could sense that. And they could sense that people know each other in this space. But if we're just a community and a group of people that aren't becoming something, then we're missing the point of what it means to be the church of Jesus Christ, to be the bride. And so we talked about that you have to apprentice and become something in this community because this community is based upon this way of following Jesus. Like, like that's, if we're just a bunch of friends getting together, then like we can be a running club, we can be whatever. But if we're going to be a church, then it has to be centered and valued on this idea that we are centered, rooted, connected together by the life and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we're willing and unwavering on that stance. But we do want to be a people that is trying to understand that maybe in a different way than what society and culture around us and the noise and the chaos, the tension, the vitriol like the way people are shouting at one another. We do want to come at that a different way with understanding grace, kindness. It's difficult sometimes. But Jesus has to be at the root of it. Has to be at the root of what we're doing as a community. And if Jesus is at the root of what we're doing as a community, then we are forced to change. We cannot simply be a group of people that are together. We are welcoming we do belong, but we have to be becoming something. And if we're going to become something, then the question is begged, and our topic for today is like, where or how do we understand what we are to become? Yes, it's Jesus. We're talking about the life of Jesus and the way of Jesus. We're talking about the need to apprentice our life, to take on the cruciform shape. But where do we get this idea from? Is it just me and Kyle? Is it just good ideas that we have that we assimilate from here? Right? No, we know that's not the answer. Is it, is it the way we feel? Is it what is a, a popular culture? What is in the zeitgeist of the culture that just, oh, we form and shape ourselves to that? And, and that influences us and it shapes us and, and those things. We understand it contextually, but it has to be something that's ever permanent. Scripture talks about something that will never leave, that will never change, that will last forever. And we believe at Mosaic that that thing that we understand, and when we talk about Jesus, that it is not simply how we feel, it is not whatever is popular opinion, it is not what is like kind of in vogue at the moment, but that it is this idea of Jesus that is rooted in the Bible, Scripture, that we are a people of the book, 
is one way to say it. That we believe in the primacy of Scripture. Another way to say it, that we use this language at Mosaic, that we think that Scripture is the authoritative Word of God. And in using that, and understanding that it is something that we partake in and submit ourselves to, that there is a certain posture that we come to this text with then, that is different than maybe the way you would approach another text that is helpful and good. We read in 2 Timothy, and we'll go into it more, but like, there is this thing that's helpful for uh, rebuke and reproof and all this. And you may approach a counseling text. You may approach a, a societal book that's naming what's going on. And it may give you rebuff. It may give you reproof. It may, it may correct. It may guide. It may shape. It may form. And that's good because all truth is God's truth. And so that thing can happen in it. But Scripture, the Bible, these ancient texts that we give ourselves to, we submit ourselves to it in a different type of posture. We come to it in a different kind of way that allows it to shape and form us rather than us trying to shape and form it. And this is the task that we're given to it. If, if Jesus is going to be the way and our life is going to take on the form and shape of Jesus, we have to have something that sort of guides that, that, that uh, gives us guardrails, that gives a backstop to it. Or else, what we will do, I am guilty of this, you are guilty of this, whether you know it or not, our temptation... And at moments, what we do is we shape and form Jesus to look a lot like us and then say that we're living in the way of Jesus rather than allowing the way of Jesus to shape and form the way we live. If we do not have something like this text, this shared upon, agreed upon idea, then it is where we'll all inevitably go. To this thing that we become, like we become the arbiters. We become the one that know what is right and good, and we shape and form the way of Jesus into something that is of making and of the fashion of our own hands and minds. It's idolatry 101. It's when we begin to shape and form God into the making of our own understanding, of our own hands. We talked about this a ton in the Exodus series. And so what happens then? is that we, we do this, but Scripture serves as this thing that kind of cuts in, that, that reminds us, that calls us back to, and gives us a shared upon idea. And so at Mosaic, we say that the Bible is the authoritative Word of God. The other thing we will say is that we think that Scripture, along with the Spirit of God, is the structure for our lives, our witness, our, our becoming. It is the thing that is going to give us the, the path that is going to give us the guidelines, that is going to give us the, the understanding of what this looks like. And so when we do that, we then have to begin to understand that along with that, the Spirit's activity is speaking to you and me today, and it helps us understand that, but it's in line with this. It's a starting point. It's a trajectory that you can go on and that you can follow. But also, this, this structure, this movement, this shaping and this forming has been happening for thousands of years in the New Testament church in the, since the resurrection of Jesus. And it was happening for thousands of years prior to that through the Old Testament scriptures and the Hebrew people and the Jewish writings and understanding. Because the Spirit is working with this text that is speaking to its people and it's creating tradition and ways of interpretation and understanding. And so a lot of what we also rely upon when we talk about Scripture and the Spirit 
is the work of the interplay of those two things over the history of time. And so we give ourselves to things like the way the church has historically interpreted things and the way the church has historically understood things. And we say that there are some times and moments where we just have to say, like, there's context and we see how it's changed and nuanced and tweaked. But alongside of this, we'll say traditionally, historically, this is the way we've seen this play out. Because here's the thing about Jesus and the Bible. You do not get to have Jesus and you do not get to have the Bible without the church. I was guilty of this. I've told this story before. I'm sure some of you in this room have been guilty of this or maybe are tempted by this. But many of us want to say things like, I really like Jesus, but I'm not so sure about the church. I like Jesus, but the followers I have issues with. Man, isn't the church just da 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 But like, Jesus is cool. I'm cool with Jesus. And I'm indebted to a, a thinker and pastor from St. Louis, Missouri named Brian Zahn. That he says, you do not get to have the Jesus of Nazareth without the church. When he says, you like Jesus, his response to you is, well, what Jesus? What Jesus do you understand and believe in? What Jesus do you know and love? It's the Jesus that the church has carried and proclaimed for 2,000 years. And if that Jesus enamors you, if that Jesus invokes some sort of beauty and excitement and desire in you, then you have the church to look at and thank. Despite all of its faults and its shortcomings and its misgivings, you have to look at the thousands of years, and that includes the generations before us that we can talk to still, that we say, you, this it maybe wasn't the best thing, like you didn't do this correctly, but they introduced you to someone that was worth following. They gave you someone that was worth giving your life to. And for that, you should forever be indebted and grateful to them. Because I think what has happened is for so many of us, we have recognized all that has like gone wrong and gone awry. And we've become obsessed with it as we rightfully should in naming it and wanting to fix it and change it and to, to develop something that is more in line with the Jesus we know. But I think like Timothy and like Paul saying to him, be grateful for the scriptures in the God that you have been known and introduced to since your youth. And for a lot of us, I think we have taken something like Scripture and we've dismissed it for what it's meant to be and supposed to be, and for good reason sometimes. For a lot of us, we've uh, sort of not known what to do with Scripture as we've made faith our own, as we've developed and kind of decided to, I don't want to say think for ourselves. I don't know if anyone truly ever thinks for themselves. That's a bit of a misnomer. All knowledge and thinking we come to and arrive to is through the context of community. But maybe as we step out of our family systems and we step out of like sort of what had been handed to us and the only world we had known as growing up, that in some sense in that moment we start to challenge and wrestle and see things and we look at Scripture and we don't know what to do with it because we are handed a version or an understanding of Scripture that it may feel incongruent with what we know to be true about Jesus and His church. And that's okay. But I don't think we should abandon it. And when I say we shouldn't abandon it, what I mean is, is I don't think we should give up the position of posture beneath it. And we at Mosaic do not want to give up the posture beneath the submission to this text that has existed for thousands and thousands of years. We are going to say to this again and again that this is what we are going to defer to. This is what we are going to give ourselves to. This is what we are going to allow to shape 
inform our knowledge and our understanding of who Jesus is and the Jesus that we want to pursue and the Jesus we want to give our lives to and be shaped by is the Jesus that we know and love and understand through the holy text that we have been given in 2,000 years worth of church history and tradition and the way that they have said that this is the way we're supposed to handle this. This is the way you're supposed to interpret this and we've learned and we've grown and the beauty of it is that that same Holy Spirit is speaking and teaching and shaping and forming that in another thousand years, another group of people will look back and they will say, we know this and understand this because this group of people gave themselves to this thing and the Lord used it and the Lord was active in it because that's the goodness of who God is and one of the beauties of what Scripture is is that the Lord is active in His people. He uses His people to speak and to talk and to communicate as His Spirit lives and dwells within us. And I think this is happening to us now, but I want to be clear that I think any time that is happening, it will always be in line with and on the trajectory that Scripture has given us. If it's out of line with that, if it's not in the context of what we know and understand as the church has walked with it for thousands of years, then we'll stop and we'll ask ourselves, well, maybe like I'm missing something here. Because what Scripture is begging of us in this to submit to it is to submit to the very notion and idea that is given to us in page one, which is that God is ruler and creator, and that His understanding of what is good and evil, what is right and wrong, is the better understanding to give ourselves to. And the challenge, the, the task, the, the conditions, the nature of being human and being in relationship with other people is that you think you know better. You think you know what is right and what is wrong. And you think your definitions are superior to those oftentimes that are being handed to you. It's true in parenting, it's true in uh, relationships and friendships, that we, we rebuff, we hold back, we, uh, no, wait, my ideas, not yours, my, my understanding, not yours, my knowledge, not yours. And scripture forces us to submit to, from page one, that we would know and understand what good and evil is on God's terms, not ours. And that's the great sin in Genesis 3. We talk about this. And I could probably talk about this every Sunday until I don't pastor anymore. And I don't think I would ever get tired of it. I think that's what we're called to be and to submit to is God's understanding. And this is what Scripture does. And so we have this moment where we're doing this. And so from page 1 to the final word is the submitting to God's knowledge and understanding of what is good and what is right. And to borrow from the Bible Project, only twice will I quote them today, so uh, you guys should be grateful for that. But if you ever listen to their podcast, they will say this, that the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. So then what we believe, this text, this library, this, this collection of books that span different genres, that span different contexts, that span different authors, this thing that has been compiled and edited and formed and shaped to be in what we have in our hands today is begging of us to understand that God's definition of good and evil, what is right and wrong, is what will lead to the life of flourishing and like humanity's potential and purpose that he created us for. And our understanding of that right and of that wrong 
is through the story and the life of Jesus Christ. All of it is pointing us to this idea and we see it in it. And so, we then have this collection through the tradition and the history of the church and it comes with certain ways to read it and to understand it. And if you have questions on that, what is big words like canonicity and it formed and did Rome really create the Bible to control people? Like all these things that I've heard people talk about. If you want to ask those questions, I would love to have that conversation with you. I know Kyle would too. I see other faces in this room that would also love to have that conversation with you and that are well-versed in those topics. I don't want to talk about that in this sermon though. Because I think what, where we go like this way with Scripture, why it's hard for us to oftentimes understand it, is because we oftentimes wrestle with this idea of Scripture sort of like, what is it supposed to be? I think for a lot of us, Scripture was misused and abused. It was, it was this thing where you're supposed to read it and then you knew exactly what to do. And for some of you in this room, you know the pain really well right now of having given yourself to Scripture and of given yourself to the way things were supposed to be and you're looking around after decades of following Jesus and going, but my life has not worked out exactly like it was supposed to. So I'm done with that book. It doesn't make sense to me anymore. Some of you in this room know the pain of, of approaching something and this problem, this pain, this thing that's deep within you and you scour Scripture and teach and you go, I, if I could just find an answer, and you haven't been able to, and so you go, I, I just don't know what to do with that book over there anymore. I'm just going to kind of leave it there because it doesn't make sense to me because it's not doing the thing that I've always been told it would do, which is answer all my questions and allow me to live the perfect life. Give me, if this is your dream and your desire, the you know spouse, two kids, 2.2 kids, a white picket fence, and a dog, right? A cat if you're uh, living in the fallen world. <laughs> so, we see this and we're bothered by it. Because this is the, the, the understanding of scripture that we were given. Is that it was supposed to be this guidebook. This thing that was supposed to answer all of our questions for us. And yet we don't find that to always be the case. And yet what we want to say is though that is true... It is still God's authoritative word. It still has something to say to you and to your life. It still has something to guide you and shape you, even though I can say those, like, those two things don't have to be mutually exclusive from one another. But if we can let go of Scripture being this rule book, this uh, moral code, this ethical guide that we're supposed to just go and read and understand, pull it off the shelf, open it up as a reference book, oh, here, what am I supposed to do? In this situation, when I don't get invited to my friend's birthday party, like, how do I handle that? Like, what do we do in those moments? Like, how do we handle these things? Like, how do, you know, it's not there. There's this thing that happens where we shape and we form our lives in such a way that, like, we know how to step into that because of the truth that we've encountered. But, like, there's no, there's no perfect code that's given. And I think that we've tried to make Scripture that. And so thus, we are given this authoritative word, this structure, this witness, this Holy Spirit to interpret, guide, and shape and call ourselves a people of the book. But how? And why? So in first, or 2 Timothy 3, 
14 through 17. It's a familiar passage for most of you. And it introduces this topic that all of Scripture is God-breathed. All of Scripture is this thing that we've been handed to help us to get to this thing. And it is the Word of God. Quick uh, little uh, tidbit on Word of God there. I think some of us sometimes have questions on that as well. It's like, well, does that mean that it was, and some of us have been taught this, that it was like God's Word handed down, like, here you go, take it. It's Muslim or Islamic idea of what Scripture is. And that's not the Christian idea. In the ancient text, when they talk about the Word of God, what they're understanding it to be is a story of God. And not just a story, if you want to get into what is word and logic and reason, uh, like in that moment, that is this way of understanding and knowing, this way of reason, this way of intellect of God being given to us in this narrative, these, these writings. And through that, then, we are given this ability to see and know what we're supposed to do in our life. So then Paul can tell Timothy, you've had this since the beginning, which for Timothy in that moment would have been the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament writings. He's saying this, this thing is telling you a story. It's inviting you into a narrative that allows you to see what it means to have reason and intellect and intuition that, that allows you to know what it means to follow God because this has all been God-breathed. There's some different ways to uh, interpret that word. In fact, uh, the Greek word for it that you will see uh, on the screen, I'm trying to do my slides again, theonoustos, literally meaning God-breath, God-spirited. But the NASB translation, if you want to put that up there, uh, you, you may be more familiar with this translation where it says that Scripture is inspired by God. And we start to open up, okay, well, what's that mean? Is If it's God-breath, is it inspired? And we start to say, like, well, th doesn't this mean that Scripture is supposed to be this other thing? We start to have ideas, and maybe this is the way you understand Scripture. I like the voice translation. They, wanna, they want their cake and to eat it too, so they're my kind of people. All scripture is God-breathed in its inspired voice. And what they're trying to get at with this is this idea that the voice that scripture is handed to us is a human voice. It's through human writing that God has worked in and through. From page one of the scriptures, after God creates Adam, from then on, all of God's revelation that he does in the rest of the text is in and through his people. The only time it's not is before people are created. The second he creates people, everything that happens after that, God is revealing and meeting and dwelling among his people through his people. And he ultimately does that in Jesus Christ as he comes to dwell among us. So we're familiar with the scripture being inspired. And when we get to know what that means, it's this thing that God's active and present in. But then this may beg the question for you, well, I thought Scripture was inerrant. So we get this juxtaposition between inspired versus inerrant. How do we handle this? If it's a story, if it's not a moral code, but I thought it was like this thing that we're supposed to hold on to and that we are supposed to give ourselves to. Inerrant is a Latin word meaning without error. And as you think about that, and as you process that, you go, well, how can this book that I'm supposed to give my life to, but also not have all the answers from, be without error? How can it be this thing that like, I'm not able to like, totally understand 
or whatever it is. Like, but if there's no errors in it, then shouldn't I just take exactly what it says and apply it to it? If you think that Scripture is a moral guide, a, a reference book, a law book, an ethical code, then yes. To read that it is without error means that you could take it and apply it to whatever you want. But if it is this story, this narrative that it's pointing us to and allowing us to see something, then no, that, does, like, that doesn't necessarily mean the same thing. Also, what you have to give space for is as it is different genres and different cultures and different contexts and different authors, that you can't ask a cookbook to be a grocery list or vice versa. If you open up a cookbook and you find a recipe and you go to the grocery store and you buy everything on the recipe, you can eat that week. You might not eat well. Because you're going to buy a, like a head of garlic and use two cloves, and then the next day you may only have rice and garlic left because you cooked the meat. But, like, I mean, technically you could eat. It would maybe be seasoned because you'd have some oil left over. But you can't expect this thing. That, that cookbook's not wrong. It's not an error. But you are asking the cookbook to do something that it's not supposed to do. You're asking it to become something that it wasn't supposed to become. Vice versa, if you took the grocery list that had all the ingredients for the recipe on it, you could make some really bad food. I've, I've had it before. I've tasted it. All the ingredients are there, but it, that was not what it was supposed to taste like. If you ask a grocery list to be a recipe, you'll miss the boat. We have to come to Scripture with the right understanding of what it is, and understanding what it is is understanding that it is doing different things at different points. It is not a history book in the way that we understand it. They have poetic and creative license. They're telling a story. Sometimes they're exaggerating on purpose because they want you to get it, and we, we understand that. They're using analogies and similes and metaphors in the same way that we would. We know last night that Georgia barely survived. We, we, they didn't almost die. They didn't almost like they didn't barely survive their life, you know, but they, David probably barely survived his life at a point last night. But like we get this. We talk about things in a way that allow us to understand and to know that like we're, we're understanding something. And in 2,000 years from now, if you would read, this is my favorite punchline. Like that everybody was literally dead all the time. They'd be like, how are people alive? Like everybody literally died from jokes like constantly. Those were some toxic jokes like that were killing people. No, we get it. So we have to approach it this way. We have to understand it's a genre, it's poetry, it's art, it's music that is being written down and retold to tell us something, to communicate something to us. And we approach it that way, and it allows us to be shaped and formed and guided into our lives. And I think that when we do this right, when we, when we see this and we understand that like whatever we're given, we've been given by the grace of God and he's used humanity and he's used the processes that humans use. And so it doesn't matter that we don't have the original manuscripts. It doesn't matter that we don't have the very first gospel that Luke ever wrote because the way things worked then and this was normative and it's normative now. They edited things. Shocker. If you read anything I wrote the first time, you would be glad that people in this church have taken it upon their good self to edit the things that I write because you wouldn't understand it. We finally have an edit button on iMessage. Praise be to God. We can edit. You can edit on Twitter now. Like Things need to be edited. Things need to be shaped. 
So why does it shock us that these things were edited, that they were formed over time, that disciples and followers of these people and of Jesus took it and said, okay, like, let, let's change it. And we were handed this text that speaks to the beauty and the grandeur of who God is, that points us to Jesus. And it's a messianic literature, and it's wisdom literature, and it's designed to be read again and again. It's designed to be read in community. It's designed to be read as a way to hold a mirror up to your life. It's designed to be read to give you insight and understanding to what it means to be human and not necessarily how to handle this conflict you have, how to handle this next step in your life, where to move. It's not a moral code. It's not this perfect thing where you go like this, but what it is is an invitation to create and to participate in the beauty of the gospel. When scripture becomes alive like that, when you start thinking about, if I can set aside this code of thinking that Jesus intends to create in me to be a robot so that I do everything exactly the way that he says that I should, and instead begin to see that he's inviting me into a knowledge and an understanding of what he wants to do, and you begin to understand and sense in scripture that what he's doing is he's saying loudly and over and over again that he was always coming for his people, he will always be coming for his people, and he will not stop, and you are a part of that people, and he is coming for you today. This is the story that we get told in Scripture, that God is coming for you and He will not relent until He has you, that He wants you to be near to Him and He wants you to be in His life and to participate in it, that the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is coming, that He has come, that He has dwelled among us, that He became part of His people so that His story could be told. And there is beauty in that and there is hope. And it takes our little minds and it takes us from looking here and it opens us up into wonder and to joy and to thinking that there has to be more to this and it wakes something up that cultivates in us this desire to be something to participate in something and to look around and go, this is not the way the world is meant to be. Injustice should bother us. It should get under our skins. Things should just irk us because we look and we say, death is not the answer. Life is. This is what scripture does. It's a story that invites us into beauty. It's a story that makes us long for the immensity of the life that God intended for us. And as you approach it that way, what it does is it invites you into your own story. Walter Brueggemann says this in his book about the prophetic imagination, which I quoted in Exodus, our Exodus series. But I think it's true in this same way for us that what Scripture does is that it invites us to nurture and nourish and evoke a consciousness and a perception that's alternate to the consciousness and perception of the dominant culture around us. Scripture in this story, as we read it, it, it is going to ask you to change your life. Scripture, as you read it and give yourself, is going to ask you to become something other than what you think you should become. Scripture is going to ask you to submit to things that are hard and feel like death. Scripture is going to ask your story to be faced. It's going to ask you to look back and see the pain and the struggling because that is what Scripture does. It does not hide its failures. It does not hide humanity's weaknesses. It puts them on display. It says, look at how the apple of God's eye, David, failed so miserably. 
And look at how good God was to come and to still participate in his life and in his people's becoming something. And it's asking you to do the same. To look at your story, to look at your failures, your shortcomings, your difficulties, your hardships. And it's inviting you in that to embrace them in the way that we embrace scripture stories. And we see the ways we've fallen short. We see the ways we've messed up. And it does not bring shame and condemnation, but it brings a desire to participate in something more than what I have been giving myself to. It allows us to see that when we define for our own selves what is good and right, that we fail again and again, and yet God is good to say, that's okay because I'm still here with you. Here's what I think is good and right. Come and participate in it. Come and be a part of it. Come and live this way, and you will taste and see that I am good. You will experience the joy of the Lord in the land of the living. These are his promises. As we see this story, as we're cultivated and shaped by this beauty, our consciousness becomes aware of something more, something else, something better. A window is opened up. A door is cracked where we can see and say there has to be more. Wonder, transcendence, something that is begging of us to participate in this. And it's not just knowledge, right? Not just handing you information. Scripture is not just a sword drill, even though those were really fun back in the day. It's not just so you know some facts. It's so that your life can be opened up and brought into this other thing, this other way of being and existing. It's asking you to create. And so now you may be saying to yourself, well, if there's no rules, there's no structure, there's no guideline, if school book, I, then I thought you said we weren't just free to be what we wanted to be. Well, it's got boundary markers. It's, it's, it's got structure to it. The spirit's alive in it. But the thing that is structuring and guiding and living through you is this story of Jesus. This way of being and existing that we see present in his life and those that choose to follow him in, the, in our lives. As you become familiar with the story, as you become familiar with the beauty of the world that Scripture is trying to paint, and in that beauty you will have to be acquainted with the pain and the suffering of the world we exist in. Beauty does not come for free. It's not just handed to you. It's an acknowledgement of the depth and the difficulty. Good things in life take time. They take struggle. They take processes. And as you become acquainted with this in the world of Scripture, hopefully you will be inspired to begin to look and see a world around you that is aflame with God and heaven that will ask of you to begin to examine your story and how does your story participate in this story? Dan Allender says this, that he says, we were written not only to hear and to tell stories, but we are a story. We are, in fact, a unique once on the earth life that reveals the story of Jesus in a fashion that no one else will ever do in the way we were written to reveal. As you begin to follow Jesus, and as the band comes up, we'll move to our time of communion.
there's this thing that happens that you become so compelled by the beauty and the story of who Jesus is. Not the rules and the regulations of it, though there are some. There are parameters, there are guidelines, there are ways that the church for thousands of years has said this is the best way to figure out how to follow Jesus. There are guidelines, there are, there are best intentions and ideas. But that's not what we're doing here. We're being invited into seeing the beauty of who Jesus is. And when you do that and you hear that story and you're compelled by that story, the natural and only response is to reject that story or to ask how your story can look like that one. That's a hard work. It's a painful work to be invited into that, to examine your story, to be honest about your story, to reveal it to yourself and to those around you. But the beauty of it is, is just like the story of Scripture and all the pain and all the misunderstanding and all the frustration, and all the ways it appears like God had abandoned them, and all the ways that it appeared like God's faithfulness had run out, and all the ways that it appeared like God had promised something and He didn't deliver, in Scripture and in your life, when you go back to those moments, you see that that is where God is just as devastatingly near as anywhere else. In those moments, it is where God is close to you, caring, being near, whispering to you that you are loved, that you are valued, that you matter, that your life is worth it, and that he wants to do something in you that only you can do by following him in it. Communion, that is what we come and participate in. How devastatingly and close God came to us and took on and became us and died, buried, resurrected, so that we could participate in this story in the communion moment is oftentimes referenced as a wedding feast. And I love this part of weddings. I say it every time I get the chance to officiate one. There's this moment at a wedding where the two stories, the two histories of those people standing there in that moment, they become one. Your pains and sufferings become the other's pain and suffering. Your aunts and uncles and the traumas and the stories become yours. The funny stories become yours. I can now tell Anna's stories as good as she can. Because I know them. They're my stories now. She's a great storyteller. It has nothing to do with me being better at that. She's probably funnier. It's just that I I try to claim that one, you know? But that's not the point. The point is is that we've become something. And her stories are my stories. And when you come to the table, that's the invitation, this story, this beauty of Jesus. You're invited into it and it becomes yours. It's reflected and shaped by it. And you participated in some way. So that's the invitation this morning, is to come and to allow the story and the beauty of who God is to overwhelm you in this moment. Allow the beauty and the grandeur of who God is to just like change the way you see and to walk out of this place in such a way that the world seems different to you. As you come and you receive the bread and the cup, come and receive God's gift to you and this story and your participation in it and your union in it. And know that your story is not wasted. There is no wasted moment. Everything matters. Your story this morning matters. It matters. And what you do with it matters. He longs to take your story and to do something with it 
So don't waste your life giving yourself to all these other things. Don't worry about what your understanding of good and evil is. Give yourself to God because it's worth it. It's so worth it. band plays, come take the bread and the cup hold on to those elements and process with what it means allow the beauty and the goodness of the Lord to overwhelm you I'll come back up at the end of the song and we'll take together, amen